Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Today, I'm going to depart from my normal interview format and do my second solo episode. Participating in all of these interviews and researching all of my guests has massively widened the ways that I teach pieces, so I'd like to pass along some of what I've learned and provide 10 creative ways to begin teaching a song, as well as two bad ways that I did way too much in the beginning of my teaching career. Across all fields, beginnings can draw us in and set the mood for whatever ensues. Think of the first few seconds of Beethoven's Fifth, the opening montage of The Lion King, or even walking into a restaurant and sensing that delicious smell the second you enter the doors, where you already know what you want to order. In all of these cases, the beginning grabs your attention and instantly encapsulates the atmosphere that you're about to enter. I believe the same applies to introducing a piano student to a piece. In the first few steps in the teaching sequence, we can help students enter the world of a piece and we can laser in on the pedagogical intent behind designing the piece, even if it's something as simple as Mary Had a Little Lamb. Before I begin, one feature of this podcast is that I occasionally discuss products other piano teachers have created that I believe could be beneficial for my audience. In all of these cases, I thoroughly look through the product myself to be sure I can vouch for it. If you've created something that you'd like mentioned on All Keyed Up, feel free to reach out to me through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com. Today, I'd like to talk about Brock Chart's Five Finger Pop and Five Finger Jazz series. As I've mentioned in numerous episodes on this podcast, I fully embrace popular and contemporary music in my studio, but sometimes when using arrangements of popular music, I come across pieces that are unsatisfying since it can be awkward to adapt vocal lines to the piano, especially in a pop style. Brock Chart's Five Finger Books provide music that stylistically references a lot of music that our students listen to recreationally, but it's written with piano students in mind, so everything is idiomatic and sequenced thoughtfully. Here are some snippets of some backing tracks from the series to give you a sense of what it sounds like. The series was recently featured in the American Music Teacher magazine with a great review by Dr. Michelle Conda. If you order from the website www.my-melodies.com, dash as in the dash symbol, not dash as in D-A-S-H, and enter the code KEYEDUP10 at checkout, you can get 10% off anything you order. Now on to the list. I'm going to start with the parentheses part of my title. To give this list some more context, I want to initially discuss two ways of introducing pieces that I frankly think are usually not great. I'm not trying to target anyone's teaching style or to suggest that these two options are always bad, but I do think there's an important contrast to draw between the 10 great options I'm going to talk about, which I see as intrinsically engaged to the piece, and the following two options, which I see as disengaged. Number one, going through the piece one measure at a time in chronological order. For instance, let's try measure one. Okay, that was good, except this rhythm was off. Let's try it again. Okay, better. Now let's move on to measure two. To me, this is the most boring way of teaching a piece, and it doesn't really 
show any kind of engagement with it. It would be like an English teacher teaching a short story literally one page at a time in chronological order. A good teacher, in my opinion, should be able to turn the piece into a real lesson that takes some kind of angle on the piece and uses it with a deliberate pedagogical intent. Number two, another way that I think is not ideal is to be what I would call a page-turner teacher and simply introduce the piece exactly the way that the method book introduces it. For instance, if a piece introduces eighth notes for the first time, the teacher at that lesson tells the students about what eighth notes are, and then the student tries the piece in mind with what they just learned a few seconds ago. This is often the approach of teachers who don't lesson plan. In my opinion, lessons work much more strongly when the teacher anticipates the next units in the book and preempts the upcoming ideas and takes a more active role in the learning process than just sitting back and letting the book do all the work. Nicola Canton has spoken about this topic a lot on her podcast, and Janine Jacobson also offered similar advice in her piano pedagogy book which I will discuss later. Now on to the list of 10 great ways to introduce pieces. Number one, using the title of the piece as a springboard for creativity. Marvin Blickenstaff spoke about this a bit in our interview when he said that he feels titles are one of the strongest ways to encourage students to be creative. Of course, this is difficult when a piece has a generic title, but if I use a piece with an interesting title, I love getting students to brainstorm what they think the piece will sound like before they look at it or hear it. Sometimes I have them improvise something based on the title and then compare their improvisations to what the composer actually did. Depending on the title, you can get really specific. So for instance, in Chrissy Ricker's Let's Quest series, which is intended to sound like video game music, I like to use the title as a launching off point to have the student come up with a whole video game concept themselves. We listen to the music and talk about who the characters in the video game might be, what level we might be on. This is also one reason why I love the Piano Safari method book. All of the pieces have fun titles. Number two, talking about why the piece is musically noteworthy. This is distinct from simple music theory analysis, like circling all of the skips or Roman numerals or something like that. That's all well and good, and I do that too in my lessons, but I really enjoy talking to the students about why the piece is good. For instance, I recently worked with one student on the theme to the movie Up. I used this piece as a tool to teach the student about seventh chords, and instead of just having her identify the seventh chords, I played her an alternate version I made up where I replaced all of the seventh chords with triads to show how how boring it would sound. This can happen with even the most basic pieces. For instance, in Piano Pronto, Keyboard Kickoff, Sweet Molly Malone introduces dotted quarter notes. When I teach that, I like to play a version of it where all of the dotted quarter eighth pairs are changed to quarter notes and the student can hear how much more square and boring the piece becomes. For me, my goal in analyzing repertoire from the get-go is not just to get the student to understand the piece, but as a way to get them to like it. Number three talking about some of the historical thinking that informed the piece. This doesn't mean just giving the date the piece was written or where a composer studied. Students generally don't care about that. Instead, I've gotten a lot more success talking about more big picture historical trends that show up in the music. For instance, if a student is playing a piece by Debussy, show them some impressionist paintings alongside earlier, more realistic-looking paintings and have the student try to observe any differences. Then play them their Debussy piece alongside an earlier, more triadic piece with more standard resolutions and see if you can lead them to quote-unquote discover impressionism. Here's another. If they're doing a piece by Bach, you can talk about how in the Baroque era there was the doctrine of affections which said that each piece has a single affect and each piece would elaborate on and explore that affect. 
So that's why there's generally not as many dramatic changes in Baroque pieces as there are in later music. So I say to my students, think of a movie that's all filmed in one location. That's like Baroque. Then think of a movie where one second we're in the house, the next scene we're in the robot factory, and next scene we're underwater. That's more like classical and the later eras. Number four, guided listening. By guided, I mean the student is not simply sitting there listening to the teacher play the piece. Situations like that don't engage students enough, in my opinion, particularly the more restless ones. Instead, I like to give the student something to listen for. For instance, introduce them to a motive that's used a lot in the piece and have the student raise their hand every time the motive appears. Orly Shaham, who was on the podcast, hosts the Bach Yard series, which includes really creative guided listening activities, like, for instance, creating a fish with cardboard and using it in various ways when listening to Schubert's Trout Quintet. That's the right idea. Number five. Sight reading portions of the piece with external stimuli to make sure the student is really sight reading. If you're going to do this, you probably want to start with one of the easier sections of the piece. This was recommended on the podcast by Emil Pandolfi, who always works on the easiest parts of pieces he practices first, so he can take as much in initially as he can. If you decide to go the sight reading route, you can move an index card along while the student plays to make sure they keep plowing ahead and don't go back and correct mistakes. You can also add a drum beat with iReal Pro or GarageBand to make sure they keep up a steady beat. I loved in my recent episode about teaching rhythm when Jason Sifford talked about how he created a groove in GarageBand on the spot in a lesson to help a student understand the rhythmic feel of a piece they were working on. Sometimes I even improvise some kind of accompanimental figure on the spot. All of these resources help encourage true sight reading. Of course, you can always default to the tried and true method of a metronome, but in my opinion, metronomes are not very musical compared to some of the other options I just mentioned. Number six movement activities. I've spoken about this in a lot of interviews, but the one where I really focused on this topic specifically is with Benjamin Steinhardt. We did a whole episode about it. But I also touched on this topic in my rhythm panel episode and in my episode with John Patrick Murphy about ORF. Music and movement are very closely related, and movement activities allow students to experience the music they're working on in their whole body and not just their fingers. This can take several forms. Of course, there's Dalcro's Eurythmics, which is on my bucket list of topics that I want to eventually do an episode about. You can also teach students how to conduct a basic beat pattern and have them conduct while you play the piece. Often, I just make up movements on the fly. As long as the student is experiencing the piece in their whole body, in my opinion, it honestly doesn't even matter what the movement is. This, of course, closely aligns with the guided listening point I made earlier, but not necessarily. These movements don't have to be done while listening to the piece. You can also have the students look at the sheet music and use their body to demonstrate some aspect of the piece through movement, like rhythm. The most stereotypical way of doing this is clapping the rhythms, but that can be dicey sometimes because clapping decays instantly, unlike a piano note, so it's more difficult to show holding notes with clapping. But the amount of ways students can perform the rhythms of a piece with their body is endless. In my studio, I have a lot of different motions that I write on flashcards, and I often fan out the flashcards for a student to pick from, and whatever they draw is how they demonstrate the rhythms. Number six, teaching a portion of the piece by ear or by rote. 
Thankfully, although this method of teaching was historically often de-emphasized in favor of teaching by note reading, teaching by ear and by rote has become extremely common and much more widely accepted nowadays in the piano pedagogy world. Of course, many method books include pieces that are intended to be taught this way, but I enjoy using these teaching strategies even for pieces that aren't. One strategy that I took from Janine Jacobson's professional teaching series, which I alluded to earlier, which I really like, is introducing students to portions of a piece by ear or by rote, and then introducing the students to the score and having them try to identify the spot that they just learned. In one example, Jacobson talks about playing pairs of measures and having the students identify which pairs are the same and which are different, and then introducing the students to the score and having the students try to find the pairs they just listened to. I love doing things like that. Number seven, having students sing the melodic line of the song. I very strongly believe in having students sing all the time, even if they're not strong vocalists. First off, at least for beginners, it's usually much easier to sing back a melody than sight read a melody, but also singing helps the students internalize the pulse, the rhythmic feel, and the phrasing. I myself am not much of a singer, but I always find myself singing during lessons to demonstrate phrasing and musicality. There's a whole episode about this topic in Tim Topham's Topcast podcast. It's episode 246 with Nikki Loney, and it's called Why All Students Need to Sing. If the method book or piece has lyrics written in, the students can just sing those lyrics. But if not, the singing could be on solfege, on a neutral syllable, or if you're feeling adventurous, you can make up lyrics yourself. I love doing this and creating kind of silly lyrics on the spot that get the student laughing when they sing along. Sometimes I let the students come up with their own words. Not to pull a shameless plug, but I'm going to be talking about ways that teachers can use lyric writing in their piano studios at the Creative Teaching Conference in Milwaukee in July later this year. Number eight, using the piece as a springboard for improvisation. I already discussed improvising based on the title, but the possibilities for improvising are endless. Really, any focal concept of the piece can be explored through improvisation. If the piece is in 3-4, improvise in 3-4. If the piece uses D position, improvise in D position. You can play the first system as written and then improvise a second system that could potentially follow the first system. You could play one hand as written and then improvise the other hand. I've discussed improvisation in many episodes of the podcast, but the episode where I delved into it the most was the very first episode with Brenda Earl Stokes. Number nine, swap roles and have the student guide you through the process of learning a song. This can be a great way to make sure the student has internalized the learning process and that they know the correct steps for working through a piece, so much so that they can articulate it out loud. See if they can look at the sheet music and anticipate what the challenges will be and work out a learning strategy for you who will be playing the role of student. Then, when the student is giving you instructions, you can pretend to be a student and make mistakes on purpose and see if the student can diagnose what mistake you made and offer a strategy for how you could go about fixing it. In buddy lessons, you can have the students take turns teaching each other certain parts of the piece. This can also be an activity that has room for humor if you try to impersonate the student, as long as you do so in a way that isn't negative or teasing. Number 10, connect it with music that they like. This requires some planning in advance, but if it's a student whose musical tastes you're aware of, you could do a little digging and try to find a song they like that uses a similar musical concept as the piece you're teaching them. Many pop songs use musical techniques that are ubiquitous in pedagogical piano music. For instance, descending bass is everywhere in piano music and in modern pop music as well. 
Radioactive by Imagine Dragons uses a sequence in the chorus, which of course many classical pieces use. On a simpler level, when I'm trying to get a student to feel a piece in 3-4 and they always turn it into 4-4, I sometimes use pop songs that are in 3-4, like When the Party's Over by Billie Eilish, which is a great one as long as the lyrics aren't too intense for your student to handle. This can help the students see that at the end of the day, music is music, whether it's the music they hear on Spotify or music in their method books. And that concludes the list. Of course, this list is in no way comprehensive. In fact, I'd be extremely interested in hearing from you if you have any more suggestions of great ways to begin teaching a piece. And if you send me one of those ways through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com, I'll post it along with the social media posts about this episode and credit you. You can also comment on the social media posts yourself with any of your suggestions. Thanks again for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. <laughs>